I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Hi, everyone. It's Mind Rolling. I'm back. And today we've got a, a wonderful conversation with Mirabai Starr. Many of you know Mirabai. We've had her on Mind Rolling a number of times, and she's been a guest podcaster. And she has a, a book that uh, we discussed that just is coming out called Wild Mercy, and it's all about bringing the wisdom of the feminine mystics into the forefront, and boy, don't we need uh, more and more wisdom from the divine feminine uh, in our very difficult world as we wake up to it on a day-to-day basis. And um, I, I want to, uh, as you all know, from all of the most recent podcasts that I've been doing, uh, and they've, they've centered around this uh, addiction to ourselves, which is a, a coined little phrase from a man named Judson Brewer, who is a neuroscientist, psychiatrist, and has a whole lab thing going on at Brown University on the East Coast, and he's going to be at uh, 1440. So I wanted to make sure that uh, I let everybody know he'll be there in mid-April, 12th through 14th. And it's called Hack Your Mind for Better Health and Health, Mental Health, Emotional Health, etc. And it's about breaking bad habits and uh, and addictions that we have. And if anybody out there says to themselves, well, I'm not addicted... I don't do heroin. I don't smoke cigarettes. I'm not an alcoholic. Yeah, well, just look at your smartphone. Start there. Then look at your eating habits. And if that doesn't get you, what about worrying on a day-to-day basis? Do you consider that a bad habit? How about self-judgment, anxiety? Right? We got it all going. So uh, it, it is my mission in mind-rolling to elucidate this addiction to ourselves that we have going on, the movie of me, as uh, as Krishnadas coined it. and uh, Oh, and Judson's doing this with a, a woman named uh, Robin Boudet, who is a behavior, behavior change expert. So again, that's mid-April at 1440. You can go to 1440.org, and you can register there. 1440 Multiversity is in Santa Cruz, beautiful campus. And so uh, it's even worth a ride from the East Coast just to do this. I think it would be very helpful. And I'm going to be uh, chatting with Judson on Mind Rolling a little later in the month. And one last other little uh, announcement information for everybody. Uh, we have a new book, and this is in my hat as the executive director of uh, 
the Love Serve Remember Foundation, which is now publishing a new book by Ramdas, and it's called Changing Lenses, and it is his most uh, favorite stories, or our most favorite stories, uh, that he has told in lectures over these many, many years. Uh, they all have a, uh, they're teaching stories, but told in his extraordinary, extraordinarily entertaining and humorous style, changing lenses. And there's, uh, there's, uh, uh, the second half of the book is, is rarities. So in other words, there's a bunch of stories that um, even I had not heard before. So, uh, I urge you to get on the email list of ramdas.org and you will see a an email an, announcing uh, the book's availability. So there you go. That's all the news that's fit for the moment. And, um, well, I could do a couple of other ads. Like, you know, everybody... For mind rolling, it'd be great if you go up and leave a review on iTunes. And those of you who haven't subscribed, subscribe. And those of you also who haven't uh, heard of the Heart Mind app that we have uh, on uh, for iOS now, it's uh, just starting to be uh, finished. The development for Android, Heart Mind, one word. Go on up there and download that beautiful app that has a lovely cross-section of meditation pieces and uh, uh, all of the podcasts and videos and articles. It's really a rich, rich experience. Okay, I think I got it all in today. And now here is my talk, chat with uh, the wonderful Mirabai Star. Hi, everyone. It's Mind Rolling. I'm back with old friend, old Old, old. <laughs> no, she ain't that old. Uh, Mirabai Star, Mirabai, welcome. Thank you, Raghu. It's been a while. Yeah. I love being with you. Thank you. And, uh, and of course, you all know, uh, if you've listened to anything on Be Here Now Network, aside from being on Mind Rolling, we have Mirabai on Guest Podcast. You can check her out. Uh, but more than that, we want to talk about this uh, wonderful new book Mirabai has written, Wild Mercy, Living the Fierce and Tender Wisdom of the Women Mystics, which uh, is going to be available shortly, right? Yeah, April 2nd. Uh, okay, so we're, we're going here. It'll be towards the end of March, so perfect timing for everybody. Yeah. You yeah. are very prolific, though, Mirabai. Thank you. How did I this? <laughs> How did you come to write this particular book? Well, it's so funny with the the prolific thing is people say to me things like, not that you were saying this, Raghu, but people say to me, "You sure crank them out, you know?" Because I have, I have a few <laughs> books, but it and that I always feel like saying, "I don't crank them." Every <laughs> sentence is. Um, uh, I'm sweating blood, you know, it's, it's a lot of work <laughs> to write a book and, but it's also what I do. It's what I love. Hmm. You know, I think I really love writing, not just the Dharma. Of course, I, I have a passion for the Dharma, but it's, it's also the written word. It's language itself as, as an offering of love, as, as a creative art form that, that motivates me to keep writing hmm. um, all these books. So I, I just um, want to say that the, the ground from which this book blossomed is, is just love and joy of writing, too. Um, but in particular, so I, in particular, yeah. what was the notion here? I, you know, that you, you have been, of course, writing about Christian mystics and uh, you know, for a long time, beautiful books and but this one is very pointed around the feminine. So yeah, what uh, is it? What's uh, transpiring these days in our world must have something to do with it, huh? That's a huge motivation, Raghu, for sure. So, you know, I've always been 
a devotional being like my namesake, the ecstatic Bhakti poet Mirabai, 16th century East Indian poet, um, have always had this strong devotional impulse. But I've also had an equally um, yeah, strong, powerful inclination toward non-dual states. And those two inclinations or impulses in my being have never felt contradictory to me. To see God as beloved, as, as holy other, and also to know that I am that, as it says in the Upanishads, and, and to experience that dissolution of subject and object into the, the one that I love. So that's never been an issue for me. And similarly, I've always experienced uh, absolute reality as not, of course, non-gendered, you know, tran- that it transcends all, all distinctions and certainly gender. You know, Brahman is beyond that than which no greater can be conceived. It also says in the, says in the Upanishads. And here in the relative world of incarnation, those dualities exist and um, injustice unfolds and all kinds of beauty happens by virtue of the dualistic qualities of this world, of this relative world. And so in this relative world, there's been, you may have noticed, a tremendous imbalance uh, toward the masculine paradigm in all arenas of the human experience, certainly in religion, in the world's great religions. And that's been kind of a lifelong journey for me is exploring and uncovering the jewels of all the world's wisdom traditions. All of them are dominated by a masculine paradigm. And I can say more what I mean by that later, if you wish. And, but also that, that imbalance happens in, certainly in politics and even in the arts in science, in, in every aspect of the human community, it's things have been skewed toward a masculine way of looking at things and doing things and, an, and a power imbalance. And so during these times when there's this strong rising again of feminine, the feminine voice. Yeah, look what happened fem- in the house. I mean... Really, that's really changed the balance, has it not? Perfect example. So it's happening. It's happening everywhere. It's happening with me too, in in the entertainment industry. It's it's every every aspect of social interaction. And so sounds true. My beloved publisher, and I say beloved because sounds true for me has been so much more than a publisher. It feels like a sangha, like a spiritual family. It's got a deep dharmic kind of foundation, they um, invited me to do this knowing that I'd been teaching courses uh, for the Shift Network for about five years on women mystics across the spiritual traditions. And so when you referred to my books on the Christian mystics, which I've loved doing, um, this is such a, a, um, a joy for me to finally be able to uncover the, the treasures from all the wisdom traditions that, I'm, that I've been working with. And for some reason, I got into this niche in the publishing world um, of being the contemporary translator of the Spanish mystics who are Christian mystics. And then that led into all kinds of Christian mystics who I love, but I'm a Jew. I'm a Jewish (laughs) Sufi Buddhist Hindu and and everything but Christian, (laughs) although I've really come to love Christ through the Christian mystics that I've gotten to to translate. Mirabai heads up the Jews for Jesus uh, banner over in <laughs> Taos, New Mexico, don't you? Yeah, that's kind of the opposite of my <laughs> philosophy of life. I'm I anti-evangelical. Uh, remember, Bob Dylan did that. He Bob, did. He was all about that for about three it's minutes. Not too good to Dylan, and too good for Dylan. It shouldn't be too good. Yeah, right. Nobel laureate. Um, <laughs> He's a talk about reluctant prophet prophets, which I do throughout my book and my work. I talk about oh, that we're all reluctant prophets. Uh, he's I'm a reluctant. Uh, well, he was a reluctant recipient of the Nobel Prize. Yeah, he'd be at the top of the list. Yeah, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. 
his whole life. He was a reluctant something or other. Saved my ass when I was 15, though, I'll tell you that. Yeah. Yep. Uh, um, I, so I do think this is important and uh, to to really point to what's more needed now, feminine, uh, in our society, in every aspect of our culture, all of it, it's absolutely needed. Uh, it's, in fact, I saw, uh, I was, uh, I read an article the other day in the New Yorker around robots, right? Mm-hmm. And artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. And at one point in the article, I should have gotten this and sent it to you and pointed to this. It was the thing that can save the developers to understand what needs to be programmed into robots, into artificial intelligence, can only come from women. Wow. And they went on about, you know, because it's only women who hold the, the compassion, and on and on and on. Um, huh. I, by the way, everybody out there, I'll find this article and we'll put it up in the show notes on Mirabai, on the page for uh, mind, this mind-rolling episode. Yeah, no, it was staggering. And I, uh, I'm i going to have somebody on this podcast, uh, which fits everything that you've done here and that we're talking about, from Google, of all places, right? She heads up what's called Google Empathy Lab. Hmm. And one, and we're helping them with a mission to, again, inform the AI developers wow. about human val- real values from humans that need to be considered when these this development happens. So this will go, you know, hundreds of years from now when they've taken over. It's like uh, <laughs> Starship. What's that? Uh, that great uh, sci-fi thing, uh, Starship. No, Galactica, right? Uh-huh. It's one of the greatest TV shows I ever saw. What the hell's in it? Huh. Battleship Galactica. Okay, I'll have to dig you, that out. Oh, you! I'm telling you, you won't be able to stop watching oh. this thing. It, it it goes on for like a number of seasons. I watched it all my way through India one time. I couldn't <laughs> stop watching it. I had it on my computer. Um, but, yeah, so this... Uh, this this kind of thinking and this uh, kind of informing that needs to be done uh, is is coming to the fore, and so uh, I'm just happy you you're presenting it in in the book. But I also would like us to talk a little bit about that that aspect, the feminine and the masculine, is inside everybody. Right. And so talk about that. You talk a little bit about it in the book, but talk about it. uh, Yeah, when I'm speaking about the feminine and the masculine, and I think I speak about it a lot in the book, I'm speaking to people of all genders. And I no longer say men and women. I say people of all genders, which I think is a lot more accurate. Um, And I'm speaking to the masculine and feminine in each of us. There, There may be a... Um, an extra dose of feminine in women and masculine in men, but we've certainly, we certainly experience both inside of us. So what I'm speaking about are certain qualities that I would name feminine qualities or attributes that I think are vitally important right now to bring forward and to infuse into every arena of the human community. And those are values like, like empathy um, <clears throat> like compassion, but also a certain kind of fierce uh, truth-telling that is subversive, that is willing to rock the boat and turn things upside down, that's willing to stand up to the prevailing power structures and say no. It's a strong prophetic voice. So the reason I, I call the book Wild Mercy is it's this beautiful paradox to me, not paradox, a, a vast container that has room for both the, the wildness and the, and the mercy. The subtitle of Wild Mercy is Living the Fierce and Tender Wisdom of the Women Mystics. 
that, that those are more attributes of the feminine that I'm bringing forth in this book. Deep tenderness, but also ferocity, you know, like a, like a, a mother lion. And those are the, are the attributes that are, that are needed now to bring balance and healing back to a, a kind of a broken, a broken system mm. that we have tried to, to fix, that men have the masculine <laughs> part of the human family has tried to repair. It's not like the masculine doesn't get that things are fucked up and broken, but that the impulse of the masculine is to create more structure, to problem solve, to, ar- to create argumentation, to prove things, and then fix them in a mechanistic fashion, like you would a broken car. The feminine, I feel, that impulse, when she looks upon the brokenness of the world, is, is the welling up of tenderness and, and a fierce impulse to protect and to nurture. And so the feminine first, I, I think, when she looks at what is not working, the pain of the world is to tune in to the cries of the world like you would to the cries of a child and to gather the pain of the world into her arms like the great mother does and to listen and to pay attention and to feel it actually in her own body, feel that pain in her own body and only then respond in, with um, wisdom, intelligence, practical uh, tools, and so on. Do you ever, are you aware of a, a lama named Garchen Rinpoche? No. Oh, he's just this beautiful lama who got mm. put in prison by the Chinese for over 20 years wow. and then got out and escaped to India and teaches around the world. I actually met him in L.A. and drove him around at one time many years ago. Wow. He is so like the Tara. He's the mother. Mm. I mean, I've never seen, and yet he was in this prison and he, it was through, you know, his masculine fortitude, if you want to call it that, that he was able to actually survive. And it was Mm. through his uh, feminine compassion developed, so much developed in him that he was able not to hate the Chinese mm. and and just kept wishing the best for them in future incarnations because, of course, what they're doing is going to cause tremendous karma for them. Yeah, he was the most incredibly developed feminine side of any, um, especially, you know, an advanced being. I mean, a very advanced being, yeah. Raghu, that's such a beautiful example of what what I'm talking about, the feminine, masculine, each Mm. of us. And and that Lama seems to be the embodiment of that balance that I think we're all we're all striving for. Yeah. Yeah. Tremendous. That'll be there, too. We'll link you you all. You're going to get the link to Garchen Rinpoche. It's a beautiful movie about him. We should find that, too. Uh, Oh, good. So. You, you touched upon uh, non-dualism and uh, devotion, and I like how you come out and completely skewer these poor non-dual people, right? Do you know, the, um, I won't tell you the who, because it would be uh, speaking out of school, but they're... Uh, and, and you know, I also am navigating publishing business with Ram Dass's books and other books. And so there's a publisher who absolutely said one day, devotional books don't sell. Non-dual mm. books sell. Wow. So we're not interested. <laughs> kind of a thing, right? So, oh yeah. So uh, not that that has anything to do with the reality behind all of this. And, and, and actually, for me, the most um, living example of the way that these come together is Tibetan Buddhism, because Tibetan Buddhism has that, and it has devotion, right? And so I've always appreciated that. But um, I like what you say here. Uh, <laughs> 
the you you out now talk about the prejudice that you've encountered, especially among what you would characterize as neo Advaita Vedanta crowd, <laughs> which I'm attempting to expose here. You're going to get a lot of mail from them, <laughs> okay? Uh, that yeah, non-dual consciousness is absolutely superior to the devotional experience. Um, one day I was doing a podcast with our good friend, Roshi Joan Halifax. And uh, I asked her, I've told this story before too, but I asked her, because uh, we were talking about Buddhism and devotion and so on, and, and I said, well, you know, you've been around Ramdas so much so, and you've seen, you know, so that means you've been around Neem Karoli Baba so much. So when you look at him, what do you see? And she said, when I look in his eyes, I just see emptiness. Empty. He's totally empty. And by the way, everybody, not in a nihilistic sense, the sense of emptiness is bliss, okay, not nihilism. And... uh and I, I said, yeah, you know, and we, we really got juiced about that. And then I said, uh, she, but then she says, but you know, at some point, in terms of the devotional thing that we were talking about, you got to, yeah, you'll have to let go at some point and, you know, come into the realization of no subject object. And I said, yeah, okay, that's fine for you. you. You've probably done a billion more lives or something than me. Okay, I, forget that. That's not happening for me, Roshi. Okay? She said, don't be ridiculous. And we had a whole thing about non-dualism <laughs> and so on. I mean, and by the way, Roshi Halavax being, you know, this tremendously loving being and what you're saying in here, and I, I sure want you to comment on it, is that eventually they they come together and that anyone who is real and following that path has to be full of love or they're full of shit, one of the two. <laughs> oh, I like that. I wish I had said that. <laughs> you have to you be full have... of love or you're full of shit. That kind of, that summarizes the book. Yeah. There we go. Okay. <laughs> but talk about it, you know, about, uh, for you. Mm. Well, you know, I'm glad you brought up Roshi Joan because that f fits right into what I, what I will talk about, because J Roshi Joan Halifax um, has the best definition of shunyata that I've ever heard. So shunyata, for those of you who are sort of familiar, maybe not, with that fundamental basic term from Buddhism, it means em it's often translated as emptiness, that the fundamental nature of reality is devoid of particular attributes. In other words, not two-ness. It's, it's all... Um, an absolute field, interconnected field, but but often described as empty, that that is the nature of reality. And Roshi Jones says that's actually not the most accurate definition. Here's, here's one. How about boundlessness? Boundlessness instead of emptiness. I feel like that's a feminine definition of shunyata. That's a woman Buddhist teacher coming in with feminine sensibilities to look at the very foundational beliefs of core, you know, the core tenet of this great wisdom tradition and sending it into, well, delivering it back to us, to the world, because we experience the abundance of reality and to, to have someone tell us that that's an illusion actually um, ends up, I think that's a lot of what I'm talking about in the book. The book is about the embodiment of the feminine. The feminine is about embodiment. When we deny the multiplicity of this world that we live in, when we deny the body and, and call it somehow impure, and that the purpose of spiritual life is to transcend the body, we're actually opening up the body and mostly female bodies for abuse. Because it doesn't matter. It's not real. It's illusion. And that's where I think a lot of sexual abuse happens in all of the spiritual traditions. When we bless embodiment as being the, the place where spirit pours into matter and infuses everything and blesses everything, 
then we're able to see that our experience as human beings in this incarnation is fundamentally blessed and that it's not empty, but it's boundless. The container is that vast. And our task as human beings on the path is, is to allow that those sense, the sense of separation to dissolve. Okay, so that comes back to devotion and non-duality for me. So you ask, what's that like for me? They've never been contradictory for me, as I said in the beginning. I've always been a devotional being. I've always been inclined, especially in meditation, to go into non-dual states of consciousness. They, they are the same. <laughs> They're the same, and I'll tell you why. When I experience devotion to that guy in the background, Neem Karoli Baba, through when I express my devotion to my beloved guru, who's been my guru since I was 13 years old, when I express that devotion through chanting, say, through kirtan, through, through offerings in the morning, the love that wells up in my heart, not every single time, but often, is the very thing that dissolves the boundaries of my individuated little personality self so that then I can melt into him. My love for my guru and all my teachers is a warm fire, sometimes a blazing conflagration, sometimes a warm heart that melts, that, that melts the crustaceans around my heart that keep me separate. And then I dissolve into that state of not two-ness, of non-duality. And then when I've had those experiences, those blessed fleeting moments where I forget my separate self and rest in my unity with my beloved, when I return from those states, the impulse of love is then to praise again. So it's this endless cycle mm. of praising and longing and longing and praising and dissolving and coming back and celebrating and complaining and fetching mm -hmm. that I'm separate again. Now, uh, one of the other things you do is uh, is is use Saint John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila uh, as emblematic of these two different uh, practices or philosophies. Yeah, talk about that. I thought that was really interesting. Actually, I didn't mm -hmm. kind of totally get it. So, yeah. yeah. Give it it's subtle and it's not particularly analytical. <laughs> my my um, looking to them as models, embodiments of these two paths of non-duality and devotion. But Teresa Vavila, the 16th century Spanish mystic who I translated and write about quite a lot in all my books, is in many ways all about devotion. It's about the relationship with the beloved as other, as, as the object of her deepest longing. John of the Cross, Teresa of Avila's protege, really, she was his guru. She was his spiritual master. He is um, much more of a non-dualist. He was very much about dissolving into the one so that all subject-object distinctions disappear. And yet they were really both, both. They were both devotional and they were both non-dual. John of the Cross is a great example of after having experienced states of unity with the divine, return to a so-called ordinary state of consciousness. And from having experienced that melting into the one, it, uttered and wrote this exquisite love poetry. John, is, John of the Cross is the patron saint of poetry in the Roman Catholic tradition for really good reason. His poetry is so much like the poetry of Rumi, who's another example of someone who's both non-dual and devotional. Rumi being the, the 13th century Persian Sufi mystic who wrote these ecstatic love poems that are dripping with embodied imagery wine and fire and gardens and gazelles. <laughs> you know, it's very much poetry of this world. And, and John of the Cross uses 
almost identical imagery in his poetry. I'm, I'm pretty much convinced, although I haven't read any scholarly research on this, but I am sure that John of the Cross encountered the poetry of Rumi and Ibn Arabi and other Sufi mystics um, when he was a young man studying theology in Spain. Because when John of the Cross was born, Spain was in the, it was, it was the time of the Spanish Inquisition. And Spain had only recently, very recently, spent 800 years under Muslim rule as a space where Jews, Christians, and Muslims not only coexisted, but collaborated on great works of mystical literature and art and mathematics and science and architecture mm-hmm. and everything else. So John of the Cross was born into a, a place, Spain, in the 16th century that was still steeped, I think, in Sufi wisdom and in Jewish wisdom. This is where Kabbalah was was written. This is where the Zohar was written. And so that's the atmosphere that his poetry came from. So my point is that, and John of the Cross was incarcerated, by the way, like this beloved Lama uh, that you're speaking about. In prison, where he almost died, John of the Cross kept himself from going crazy and probably kept himself alive by composing poetry, composing poems and memorizing them. And then when he miraculously escaped from prison after nine months, he wrote them down. And this is the compendium. This is the incredible body of work that John of the Cross has bequeathed to the world, these, these love poems to God. And he, it was through that dark night of the soul. John of the Cross, of course, is the, is the dude who coined that term, dark night of the soul. And you and I have done a podcast on this. Yeah. Um, it was through that dark night of the soul, through dissolving in radical unknowingness, which is what the dark night is about. It's the ultimate non-dual state. It's like we cannot know anything. All of our attachments uh, are lit on fire and fall away like ash. We're, we're languishing in the belly of the great fish like Jonah. We're suspended. In a dark night of the soul, everything is taken, stripped from us. And we abide in this liminal space of not knowing this. That, and that leads into... A, a very non-dual space of, of radical surrender because you just can't hold on to it anymore. Mm. And, and similarly, Teresa, who was passionately devotional, would slip into these states of prayer. She called it prayer, contemplative prayer, where she forgot herself completely and became her beloved. Mm. So I hope that clears up that paradox of and, non-dual and devotion. Yeah, it's totally clear now. I am clear. Uh, <laughs> actually, you know, what happened to me, I ended up years ago with a friend at a Hare Krishna festival, okay, ISKCON, Hare Krishna festival, in beautiful North Carolina mountains. And this one particular chanter, Gaiman, um, Madhava Prabhu is his name. Another link we should put up. I I went into one of the states that you're describing, and I, and anyhow, I I was about ready to go over to and just say, cut my hair off and keep that little <laughs> top notchy thing that you do. Whatever you want to do, give me the orange. I'm a Hare Krishna now. I'm a complete believer. There is nothing. Chant the name. They had nothing else, okay? I was, I mean, I'm kidding a little bit, but not that much, actually, especially since my real name has to do with Krishna. Mm, Raghu, that's so beautiful. And that, I know you probably have something you want to ask me, but just, just a quick response to that. My whole path, my whole life has been interspiritual. That is drawing on the nectar, from all the world's great wisdom traditions. And I've always felt like one of each. You know, I have my root traditions. I, I was born a Jew and I do feel a certain connection to my ancestral tradition somewhere in my DNA. It's there, it's strong. I feel it during the high holy days. I feel it when I hear the Hebrew prayers. My lifelong devotion to Neem Karoli Baba, to Maharaji, it's definitely a root tradition for me. Um, and yet I've always had this interspiritual heart that just falls open 
in all of these different spiritual spaces, you know, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, and all the different denominations within each, even the ones that seem really, really foreign, like evangelical Christianity, whose politics couldn't be more diametrically opposed to my own. There are ways that I've experienced those communities as being so beautiful, that the heart-opening passion for God and is, um, I recognize it and something in my soul says yes. Hmm. And don't so forget- I'm glad you had that with the uh, Ishkan uh, people. Uh, <laughs> and don't forget Sri Ramakrishna, right? He's Who the embodiment of that. He's the embodiment of that. And, and remember the story of when uh, a teacher came a non-dual teacher and said, I'll show you reality. And he said, of course, I want to know. <laughs> and whatever, whatever happened, whatever exercise, she said, I don't know what, but he went right into shunyata, right? Right into the core of non-dual. And, and then he came out of it crying, no, no, I don't want it. I want to worship mother. I don't mm. want it. I always loved that. When I oh, first got I to India, that he, he was a huge influence on me, actually. Uh, isn't he the one, I mean, Sri Ramakrishna, who I love too, is one of my teachers, but didn't he say, um, I don't, I want to taste sugar, I don't want to be sugar. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. Now you have in here, uh, I got to read this because I love reading devotional poetry. Uh, and you have uh, this, as far as I'm concerned, says it all, okay, in terms of my own proclivity. And it's by the poet St. Mirabai, who you're named after. Uh, and it's the dagger. You have this, it's extraordinary. The dark one, which is Krishna, Sham, threw me a glance like a dagger today. Since that moment, I am insane. I can't find my body. The pain's gone through my arms and legs, and I can't find my mind. At least three of my friends are completely mad. I know the thrower of daggers well. He enjoys roving the woods. The partridge loves the moon, and the lamplight pulls in the moth. You know, for the fish, water is precious. Without it, the fish dies. If he is gone, how shall I live? I can't live without him. Go and speak to the dagger thrower. Say, Mira belongs to you. <laughs> I mean, it's so absolutely phenomenal. That is from, I happen to have that book right here. Oh, really? This beautiful translation. Oh, Robert Bly, yeah. Robert Bly and Jane Hirschfield. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that looks that's wonderful. It. I don't have that. Um, you also talk about what, you know, so alighting on this path, the path of devotion, certainly widely opens one's heart. And of course, that causes sometimes many problems for different people because a rush of everything comes in there not just what's nice. And you do talk about what breaks our hearts is also what connects us, the exquisite impermanence of the phenomenal world and our longing to keep what we love the same forever and our desire for that which we can't stand to go away and for which we can't stand to go away and never come back. She got that it wouldn't hurt if we didn't love and that love is worth the pain that even knowing that loss is inevitable, she would not hesitate to love all over again. So this, uh, to me, is uh, extraordinarily important in terms of what I like to do with mind rolling, which is suggest things that can really open us up on a day-to-day -day basis about not closing down. So, yeah, why don't you elaborate a little bit about what breaks our hearts is what connects us. Mm. And around acceptance, which is part of this, obviously. Right. Yeah, that passage um, came from a story that I told or retold. And th this book is a, um, a lot of storytelling of mm, different which is great. saints and mystics and goddesses. 
Yeah, and it's a. I think that's a very feminine thing too, is storytelling as as a a way of of telling ourselves and each other who we are as a collective. Um, and so that was the story of Kisa Gotami, who is the the it's the famous story of the uh, Buddha and the mustard seed, where a woman a woman's child dies, and she is absolutely inconsolable and someone tells her to go to this grove where the Buddha is giving his teachings and maybe he can bring the child back to life. This was after she had asked everybody she could think of if anyone had the cure for death. And so she brought her the, the body of her dead child to the Buddha and he said, um, yes, I'll bring your child back to life. But first, what you need to do is go to every household in this village and ask for a, a mustard seed from a family that has not experienced the death of one of their loved ones. When you bring me those seeds, I will use them to create a cure. She thought that was a, that was a very reasonable um, bargain. And so she went to every household. Actually, I think he said, just bring me one. Just bring me the seed from one household that has not experienced mm -hmm. the death of a loved one. And of course, there were no households that had not experienced the death of someone they love. And when she returned, she was spontaneously awakened. And her child did not come back to life. But what happened inside of her was taking a taking of her rightful place in the family of humanity that she recognized maybe for the first time that we all belong to each other and that she um, is part of this infinite web of belonging, of interconnectedness. And this is her participation in the human condition. And it opened her to, with compassion for all beings everywhere who suffer. And I'm writing about, I think that came from my chapter on death and dying, grief and grieving, although I'm not sure, I can't remember. But of course, for me, everything I write about in this book is grounded in personal experience or I wouldn't dare to go there, you know. And, mm -hmm. and when I experienced the death of my own child in a car accident when she was 14, I had a Kisa Gotami moment. Now, I didn't spontaneously awaken, but I did have a visceral experience of felt connection to all mothers mm. everywhere throughout time who had experienced the death of a child. And right then, Jenny died right around 9-11 and right after um, that, she died in October of 2001, where we were, the U.S. was raging war in the Middle East and there was this sense that I was living with of mothers in war who on a daily basis now and forever had always experienced their children being killed um, to, at, um, as collateral damage in these senseless wars and spaces of violence. And so that was my, that was my stepping into my community, the human community for the first time. The, the com I'd always felt compassion, but now it wasn't compassion like those poor people elsewhere who are suffering or this poor person in front of me who's suffering. It was compassion as being with the pain of the world and, um, mm -hmm. and participating in it. And I think that's a quality of the feminine is allowing the pain to break our hearts and break them open so that we can hold in that vast broken open heart all the suffering of the world. You know, I'm just reminded of a situation where that was presented to me hugely when my son, when he was a year and a half old, he got spinal meningitis and he had to be, we were in New Mexico 
and he had to be rushed to Albuquerque on a uh, had to be taken on a on a plane there because he was he went uh, into a coma, mm. and and my my wife at the time my mother of my children whose name is Parvati Marcus who wrote this wonderful book Love mm. Everyone and Mirabai knows well uh, she stayed at the hospital she was like a total. Ramdas calls it loving rock, you know, how you have to be around this kind of, I mean, he potentially was going to transition because it was really, uh, you know, very dramatic. Mm. I, on the other hand, was a screwed up mess. Mm. And I just, yeah, the moment just went away from me. And, Mm. And fortunately, thank, you know, the Baba behind you, um, I had a dream after a few days of this coma where Maharaj came to me and said he's going to be okay and I went back in the morning and he was okay. I mean, mm. he came out of the coma. But I'll never forget Parvati's uh, uh, solidity in that moment and and it had to come from this kind of interconnectedness that the, that is so uh, available to feminine heart. How beautiful, beautiful example, right? This is not mushy, airy love that we're talking about. This is mountain love. This is rooted Mm -hmm. love. This is love that is deeply entwined with Mother Earth herself, who is the source of that strength and power Mm -hmm. and tenderness. And what's, what's called on today to really take a front seat to be able to um, to really address what's going on and, and make the kind of changes that are necessary from the environment on down. Um, so, oh, one thing, there, I'm not that familiar with one of these saints and who maybe really embodies the emptiness side, right? Rabia? Mm, yeah. Yeah, introduce her. She's pretty fantastic. Uh, Mm, and and you say at one point her only goal was to get out of her own way yeah so she could get to go get out that should be all of our goal of all of us it should be our goal get out of our own way and you say she was the embodiment of the sufi path of fana which is annihilation of the separate self which leads to divine union yeah talk about her she's fascinating Mm, yeah she was um early, early Sufi poet, ninth century uh, Persian mm. poet. And she was a mystic. So she was actually, she came from a super poor family and was sold off as a, as a slave, as a young girl. And she was treated terribly in the household where, um, well, she was treated like slaves are treated. She was worked from morning till night. I don't think she was particularly beaten or anything, but she was worked like a machine rather than not treated like a human being. And one night her master woke up because he heard this crying, this wailing, and he climbed up onto the roof, which was where the sound was coming from. And he saw Rabia praying and prostrate on, on her knees with her, with her arms stretched forward on the roof. And she was crying out to Allah, in in praise in love and there were flames leaping from the top of her head and he and this luminescence surrounding her she was resplendent with longing and love for the holy one for the beloved and he realized in a moment that this this young woman was a saint and it turned out that she that's what she was doing every night, you know, that the other people in the household later reported that she would work all day and pray all night. Rabbi was famous, by the way, for saying something like, Beloved, if I worship you for fear of heaven, I mean for desire for heaven, keep me from heaven, bar me from the gates. If I worship you for fear of hell, then burn me in the fires of hell. But let me love you only for yourself, which is a kind of fierce non-dual. Um, d- devotion <laughs> to to God alone, and, and not any concepts of God, but a living, direct, 
naked encounter with reality. But so anyway, the, the slave owner, once he recognized her as a saint, the next morning said, you know, I'm, I realize who you are and that you've been in our midst all along. And I, I see now, and I want to be your follower. Would you please stay in our household and we will take care of you and you will teach us the way to love God, to be with God. Um, and if you decide not to do that, you, you can have your freedom instead, but I hope you will stay and teach us and we will take incredible care of you and bring disciples to study with you. And she said, no, thanks. I, I think I'd rather have my freedom. And with her freedom, she could have had any resources that she wanted, but instead she chose to go out into the desert and to live as a holy hermit. And she refused all followers. People kept trying to come and, and be her followers, and she sent them all away, although I, uh, with a little poetry or a little, a little something, a little dharma before they left. Mm. But she made it very difficult for people to, to worship her. She turned the attention constantly to, to the one. And then she spent her life living this in radical voluntary simplicity and silence and solitude, uh, but writing love poems to God. Hmm. Amazing. Just think of this, everybody. Uh, just think of this, everybody. You know, who, we're, we're all listening to this. It's not, these are real people, okay? These are not made-up fantasy figures out there. This isn't Marvel Comics, okay? <laughs> so there is a... Sarsweti Marcus is in there. In there? Oh, yes, I, I saw that too. Uh, yeah, no, I'm just trying to say, though, that um, this is absolutely within each one of us. This maybe not in the the dramatic way because you know well there's slavery everywhere in this world too but i mean for the those of us that are in this contemporary american culture right here or western culture uh, we have an opportunity to really um, absorb what these people went through and you know and how Mirabai you've been doing this for years sharing this kind of thing so people can get uh, a leg up on understanding how what this is what devotion is I mean most particularly devotion I think non-dualism I mean the way that you've contextualized it in the book I think there is some relationship for people to be able to understand it but it's it's a very difficult path uh, in my mind and, which is why I said that whole Hare Krishna thing. <laughs> That's the only way, you know. Uh, and and Maharaji himself, without telling us to do anything, uh, somehow we all were led to substantial Buddhist practice, mindfulness practice, vipassana practices as a uh, as a uh, foundation for us to be able to have the kind of uh, focus that uh, when a heart opens, uh, you don't run away. Just right. Oh, that's so good, Raghu. When, when the heart opens, you don't run away. Yeah. That's what contemplative practice gives us. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so there, there's something else here uh, as we, we're getting closer to the end, but I, I just, you, you talk about something that I don't believe I've, I had encountered uh, the term restorative justice. Mm. Yeah, talk about that. I think, um, and and tell that story uh, mm -hmm. of that, uh, you know, that horrible incident that took place with a couple and 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 a fight they had. You know, yeah, tell that first, and then then maybe go into the what restorative justice really is. That story is pretty powerful. Mm, thank you. I remember crying when I wrote it. <laughs> if I can still make myself cry, I feel like I'm on the right path. Yeah, mm -hmm. the book is, um, as you've said, it's stories of different women mystics throughout history and across the spiritual traditions, but it's also contemporary examples of living these teachings to the best of our ability in the world. In fact, the book is, is structured that um, all of the chapters are not about different women mystics and goddesses, but they're about different life um, elements of, of our lives, like mm -hmm. creativity, sexuality, stewardship of the earth, contemplative life, and uh, forgiveness and reconciliation, which is where this story comes in. I, 
it's a very political book as well as being spiritually oriented. I speak a lot about justice, social justice and environmental justice. But restorative justice is a practice that was really developed in among indigenous and first nations peoples. In fact, I believe in, in Canada, your home country, your mm-hmm. country of origin, Ragu, um, where in when a crime is committed uh, in a community, the community comes together as a whole and everybody shares the way, the very specific ways in which that act affected them. So the victim, the victim's families, the perpetrator, the perpetrator's families, and together the community finds a way to repair the harm. It's all about repairing harm. Restorative justice is justice that is not punitive, but rather mends the torn fabric of community that, that happens when someone violates um, the loving contract that people live within. So the experience I was talking about um, was, I, I'm a grief counselor, which is one of the things that naturally kind of happened when when I lost my daughter. So I was the grief counselor to a woman whose whose young daughter was killed by her boyfriend accidentally, but in an act of of passion and anger. They had had a fight. They were drinking. They were in a parking lot of a motel. They were both 16. Well, she was 16. He was 18. And he, he roared out of the parking lot and backed over her and killed her um, in, in this fit of anger. And so our community here in Taos was, was trying to implement restorative justice for some, uh, for some particular um, cases. And they decided to try it on this, in this case, mostly it was being used for nonviolent um, kinds of crimes, you know, stealing and things like that. But they wanted to try it for this because this young man was filled with remorse. He did not need to kill his girlfriend. So as the grief counselor of the mother of the young woman who had been killed, I was invited to participate in this restorative justice circle. And a talking stick is passed around. Everybody speaks their part. When the young man was let in 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 handcuffs and shackles because he was in jail for this restorative justice session in his orange jumpsuit, he wouldn't look up. He looked like like this gangbanger dude, you know, just angry and disconnected. He wouldn't look anyone in the eye. He sat down in his seat and people began to share one by one how this death of this this young woman had affected them and their lives, her friends on her basketball team, her sister who was pregnant with her first child, and then the mother, her mother, my my friend who, uh, for whom I was the grief counselor, shared and expressed her forgiveness. Like she knew, she knew this boy, he was part of their lives, their family. She knew he didn't intend to kill her daughter and that he must be suffering terribly and that he was facing potentially many years in jail and he and he was sentenced but the restorative justice circle became part of the sentencing the judge took all was there also took all of that and he just listened the judge was just there to listen took all of that in before the um hearing later where he would give his sentence and the sentence was much lighter as a result of of having the circle but what happened is that the young man, as each person spoke, began to soften and his armor just, you could see his armor just begin to melt against his will. And then little by little, he began to open and cry and he started to cry. And then he wept and he wept. And when it came time for his chance to speak, he was a completely different person than the the kind of belligerent gangbanger dude that walked in the in the door and at the end his the the mother asked before he was led away back to jail if she could hug him Mm. and so it was like it was like mother mary and i don't know who coming together they walked from one end of the circle of this room to the um to the middle opposite ends to the middle and with his handcuffs and his shackles, they embraced and she held on to him for a long time. And when they came apart again, they were both, they were both crying. We were all crying and crying again because it was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And I have experienced many beautiful spiritual 
ceremonies. That was a ceremony that changed everything. Amazing. Yeah, and it's totally conveyed. It was uh, in, in the book, yeah. I have to try to tell that story without crying. I'm going to practice. <laughs> You're going to get a lot of practice going around the country, I'm sure. Uh, well, I want to end this with one thing you said, which to me is is the uh, core of everything that we all can talk about in terms of spirituality and being on the path and get a life in balance, which is our motto at Mind Rolling. And here's what you say. As it turns out, to awaken mostly means to live with compassion and wisdom, resting in our interconnectedness with all beings, recognizing the truth of suffering, and dedicating ourselves to alleviating it wherever we encounter it. What else is there? And in fact, you know, we have a I've been telling people we have a, a new full-length Ramdas movie that's going to come out later this year. And there's one, my favorite part in it is just this. Enough already with doing the spiritual practices so you can get better. You can be better. You can live with yourself better. Whatever it is, s just start thinking of others. Okay? Just, just go there. And Raghu, I, and I'd like to say that that is the, the essence of the feminine in women and in men, hmm. that the masculine paradigm that we see in all the world's religions have encouraged us to purify and perfect ourselves so we could attain our individual states of enlightenment or liberation or salvation. The feminine is in all of us, is all about waking up together and and alleviating suffering and experiencing radical truth and love in the entire community of being, mm -hmm. humans, animals, the earth herself. It's a big relief when you stop thinking about yourself for a minute even. And, and of course, we were fortunate to have that experience with Maharaji and he gave us that period. Without that, I have no idea where I would be today. Mirabai, so great to have you. Thank hang you, out with you. I was like, Mirabai and I spend time together and uh, well in Taos, although I have I'll see you there this summer in Taos. Uh, and uh, at the Ojai retreats and so uh, best of luck with the book. I, I really hope I, I know it's gonna get out there. And, uh, oh, thank you. It's been number yeah. one new release in spirituality on Amazon for like a month. Oh, and it hasn't even yeah. come out yet. So I'm really oh, that's fantastic. seeing that it's resonating and I'm excited and scared to death, by the way. <laughs> Just between you and me, don't tell anyone. No, I won't. Uh, everybody go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash mindrolling and all of the stuff that we've been talking about, there will be links to everything. Even Rabia, we got to have a link to her, okay? So you're going to have to, you may get some calls from uh, the, the, the people that put this together, Corey and Noah, uh, about that. So thanks again, and everybody, we shall see you next time on Mind Rolling. Namaste. <laughs>